Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Metcast, the podcast of Manchester Metropolitan University. My name is Dan Cotton and in this episode I am joined by researchers from the University's Institute of Sport. With the Olympic Games beginning in Tokyo, Japan, Professor Jonathan Griggs, Head of Manchester Metropolitan Sports Policy Unit, and Dr Paul Brannigan, Senior Lecturer in Sports Management and Policy, join me to discuss their research into mega-sporting events. In this episode, we discuss the concept of soft power and the future of the Olympic Games and mega-sporting events in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Grix, if we can come to you first, and uh, can you just start by explaining your research around sporting mega-events and the Olympics? Sure, yeah, we've uh, been working on this area for about, oh, over 10 years now. I just start prior to the 2012 Olympic Games, and something that struck us at the time was uh, the so-called legacies that are attendant to or or thought to be attendant to um, sports mega events and in particular olympics and so we've done a lot of research around these specific types of legacies one of which is uh, soft power that paul's going to talk about uh, in a bit you know these sort of intangible benefits of hosting Um, and we've looked at and and problematized some of the other things like um, economic benefits that are said to accrue by hosting these uh, events, we've looked at uh, international prestige in a political sense and a number of other factors and, and, and looked whether they actually play out in the real world. Uh, that's most of our research has been uh, uh, focused around that area. We also have a project on uh, Olympians, aptly named the Olympian Project, and it focuses down on the actual people, you know, without whom uh, you wouldn't have an Olympics in the first place. There's not much, funny enough, you wouldn't uh, believe it, but there's not much research on the actual Olympians themselves. There's much more on the hosting and the politics of the Games, but not much on the Olympians themselves. And we're looking really at um, what makes up a an Olympian. You know, what, so what's the ingredients that go into developing and producing an Olympian and and there's many sort of interesting aspects that come out of that. Uh, I'll, I'll pass over to Paul and to talk about uh, some of our soft power work. Yeah, thanks very much, Jonathan. Um, so just to sort of give a very brief sort of 101 to soft power, starting broader is the idea of power in the broadest sense is really of capability of a person or a state or an organisation to get what they want. Now, soft power was coined in 1990 by Professor Joseph Nye uh, from Harvard University. And what Nye's really sort of sought to do is put forward a much more sort of policy-oriented approach to power and really looking at how states get different forms of power. So he coined sort of two, two terms really concerned with today. The first was hard power, ability to get sort of outcomes through coercion or payment. So, you know, we look more conventional power forms such as, you know, states, uh, military coups and invasions of other states and areas, um, but also through monetary, both incentives such as cross-border tariff reductions or market access uh, and investment guarantees, or also disincentives, financial disincentives via, for example, sanctions embargo goes or the suspension of aid and then that was the hard power which is much more conventional form of power in international relations but as i say in 1990 he coined the correspondent concept of soft power uh, which in contrast is the ability to get 
outcomes states want through attraction rather than coercion or payment. So just some of the broader examples of soft power. You know, we look, for example, at uh, areas that states look to, to sort of showcase, be that an attractive culture, appealing values, policies, institutions or various uh, accomplishments. You know, so we take, for example, a state, you know, such as Italy, which is, you know, recently been dubbed a uh, sort of cultural superpower and is known for uh, its sort of global omnipresence of cuisine, but also renowned luxury brands. And of course, there's a very strong tourism pool. So it's really about how states can become uh, attractive on the international stage. Now, I think really key for what, what Jonathan uh, and myself have really added to the soft power literature is the role of these major sports events, sports mega events, as we call them. Now, they really, through our research, are identified really act as what we might call forms of strategic communication. Uh, now, as we live in a world, of course, of mass internet um, and information flowing around, you almost get this sort of period of white noise. There's almost too much information out there in the ether. Um, and what mega events really do is draw attention. They provide their host states or cities with an opportunity to grab the world's attention. You know, we, as Jonathan and I have said, you know, tr- difficult to really think of a, a global event that encourages um, such a global following, which is really in the billions. So for various countries, if you're a country such as the UK in 2012, or of course uh, Japan and Tokyo, this is a great opportunity for you to re-image yourself in and amongst the community of states. Also, as our research has shown, uh, which is certainly very novel, uh, in the case of more small states, which aren't as well known, so looking ahead to the Qatar World Cup next year, it's also these events act as a great way to introduce yourself to global audiences. So for states, large and small, well-known or unknown, these events are, are really great to introduce, but also to re-image yourself on the international stage. And and when we're looking at, we're thinking about Japan specifically with the Olympics, does this soft power explain why they've gone to so much effort, spent so much money and have to put this extra effort in with the COVID pandemic and with everything else going on to actually get the games to go ahead? Does that explain their their motivations behind doing this? I think there's uh, probably a couple of ways you could answer that, Dan. Um, First and foremost, if it were normal times, I would say yes, of course. The hope of hosting for Japan was um, not only to gain soft power, in the first instance, uh, an international prestige, but also uh, to bolster their regional status because they're in a particularly East Asia is a, a particular region, you know, with um, vis-a-vis um, China and South Korea. You know, they have to position themselves. So, uh, but um, that's on that's a sort of on the one hand, that would be the normal explanation you would give. Uh, the second thing would be internally and equal to the others, I would say. Uh, they would like to bring the world to Japan because Japan is very inward-looking. Um, they are as a people. It's monocultural. You know, it's inward-looking, and they really wanted to use this event to put themselves on the uh, put themselves out there on the world stage, but bring bring the outside uh, inside. So they're mingling. You know, you got the uh, through tourism for tourists, uh, and they would have sort of in effect internationalised themselves and their citizenry. That would have been my standard general uh, answer to that initially. With that, you would have you would have hoped for, like most of these games, along with the uh, economic boost that comes from tourism, you would have hoped for the, uh, the so-called feel-good factor. You know, from the, the, these games generate. Now, 
of course, we have no fans in the stadium. We have um, no tourists. So you, you, a lot of these answers that we'd normally give, we're going to have to, you know, rethink them. And, and the second part of your question is, is this why they've pushed so hard? I think what's actually happened, uh, if I'm honest, is that because we're very, they, they've they've um, not cancelled the games, but they've postponed the games once. But they've, I think, had we had the sort of um, COVID numbers that we have now, we may have seen a cancellation of the games. So um, I think it's just gone too far, and they, they you know, they, they've got to go ahead with the event. And the pressure there, and that's the answer to your question now, is um, they've had to go ahead with the games. I think for external reasons so both from the IOC the International Olympic Committee but also sponsors you can't pull out you know, so much money involved in uh, the Olympics the Olympics is itself uh, the most political and most sort of economically lucrative um, sporting global event and you you know it's too late there's too much uh, too much vested interest to stop what will be a very very unusual event and it will be like no other event we've seen you know with, as I said with uh, all those things above no 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 fans no feel good factor no economic boost no tourism no uh, multiplier effect because you get a multi you get people come and visit your country they go back and tell friends who then equally go back and visit that country and it you know it's a a, a sort of virtuous uh, cycle but you're not going to get that so i think it's likely to not reap the benefits that we normally see in the games and in fact the feeling i've got at the moment is people just want to get it over with uh as quickly as possible and usually I would say at this point when the when the first whistle blows or the first race starts usually people forget everything and it, I think you know we had this in 2010 in uh, India Commonwealth Games where there were lots of negative factors um, you know as soon as the whistle blows we even had it in 2012 as soon as, as, soon as someone starts the, the action starts people forget about it and then it get they, it's positive but I don't think that's going to be the case because COVID's not like that because it's everywhere. And people are worried. Uh, if you're an athlete, you've trained all your life, you know, if you get COVID, you're out. You won't, you're, you'll be a uh, question whether you'll actually be an Olympian because you've been picked to represent, but you won't actually represent. So that's an, that's an academic question that I should know really the answer to. <laughs> so, yeah, so a very unusual game to head. And given all these added complexities and the difficulties that that the pandemic has caused to Japan, how do you think these games, these Olympic games, will maybe shape other countries' attitudes to, to hosting mega events, taking on something like this? Um, what do you expect to see in future in terms of bidding for games and large events? Well, I, I think just to come in there, I think the Olympics and the IOC has had a very, very interesting time in its history so prior to covid we sort of see started to see sort of cases or or, or well, i guess examples if you like of states starting to actually question whether hosting these major events is actually worth it so we take boston's bid for the 2024 summer olympic games for example uh, which eventually went out to a referendum and it was actually shown to be a significant lack of support um, for the boston uh, olympic games and of course there's more of an appetite for la and i think one of the reasons 
reasons for that is, I think, you know, and this is where there is some sort of disjuncture uh, between policymakers and also academics in the sense there's this general sort of narrative, incorrect narrative in mainstream society that these events are good, that they actually benefit and they actually turn profits, where... You know, you can not even a handful. I mean, apart from LA 84, I can't really think of any games that actually turned a profit. And the only reason LA 84 did it is because they didn't have to build. They already had the existing infrastructure in place. So, you know, I I think this whole push from the IOC and and FIFA to a certain extent of this idea of a legacy, I think states are starting to question that a lot more now. Um, And I think on on the one hand, I think that will have a significant impact moving forward. I think with COVID as well, you know, certainly we can ask ourselves, are these games less attractive now than they once were? They were already becoming somewhat unattractive because of the costs, and now there's an extra layer added there. I think another really interesting thing here is also the fact that a certain type of sport, if you want to call it that, has probably also benefited quite well from the COVID-19 pandemic and subsequent lockdowns, which, of course, is the ridiculously fast emerging uh, phenomenon of esports um, and I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out in the future and whether there are more calls for uh, either these you know, major uh, sports events in the form of esports to take the place of the Olympics or the World Cup or perhaps more realistically whether we're going to see some more of a shift in esports becoming part of the conventional Olympics um, or World Cup but I think the real I think it's a really really interesting position here in the sense of prior to the pandemic, the power relations between the IOC and FIFA and, and nation states and cities was being questioned by the latter, who of course didn't actually pay for these events. I think with COVID now and also esports, I think these cities and states are going to continue questioning, you know, whether or not they should actually be hosting these events uh, even more so than ever before. Just to, just add there that uh, I noted that Brisbane has been um, nominated as the host for I think it's 2032 isn't it uh, Olympic so uh, and I think they are of what you said Paul I think they're aiming for the LA type thing where they've got most of the things in place I think that's what you're going to see in the future where people uh, states are going to be using existing stadium existing um, uh, facilities yeah and it's in, in terms of your your you know your your focus of your research now Paul specifically on moving to Qatar. That is a prime example, is it, of of a, of a state that is using the soft power, um, and that we'll see the kind of next mega event. Hopefully, once COVID, uh, we don't know what what the stage is going to be at next year. But um, what what kind of issues are around Qatar at the moment that we're likely to see come up following the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Actually, I think Qatar, following on what we just said there about the future of sports mega events, you know, Qatar is a very good example of a state using both hard power and soft power. You know, so Qatar is going to be a spending, by the time the World Cup comes along, they're going to spend $137 billion on World Cup-related infrastructure. I mean, that's astronomical. But Qatar, like some of its neighbours are one of the few countries in the world who can afford to host these events. So an additional point to your previous question would be countries like Saudi Arabia or the UAE and obviously Dubai and Abu Dhabi, you know, what role will they have in the hosting of future mega events? Because they're some of the countries who can really afford this. You know, so will these events go to, uh, or continue going, one might say, um, to these countries with an awful lot of capital and reserve? Um, but I think on the soft path thing, yes. I mean, look, Qatar 
is a, is, is a small state. Um, it has a population of under three million. Um, you know, like all small states, its greatest hurdle is its invisibility. Um, so I think, you know, hosting a major event like this for Qatar um, is a great way to, to showcase its existence, but also the state would hope um, it can showcase itself or position itself as a very appealing um, tourist destination. Um, it can overcome some of the more sort of broader stereotypes of Islam and the Islamic region um, and really showcase, you know, which having been in Qatar many times, like I can attest to, you know, it's, it's people are very, very hospitable um, and showcase that and showcase it's not a country that... You know, one would maybe think of initially when, you know, in terms of stereotypes of Middle East and, you know, issues of civil strife and everything else. So, you know, the World Cup for Qatar is really a stage through which it can show it's a very safe, friendly uh, and attractive country to visit, visit and also do business with, of course. Interestingly, you know, I think we have to differentiate between um, FIFA World Cup and the Olympics because the next um, set of Olympics are paradoxically going back to the original, um, to the traditional um, states, the rich uh, Western states, because uh, we had this big shift towards, and that was our book in 2019, on uh, a big shift towards um, emerging states. Uh, now you see almost a shift the other way. So we've got, you know, Paris, you know, it's Los Angeles and uh, a part of Mexico, isn't it? You know, a, a dual thing, and then it's um, now today Brisbane. So these are countries that have that have held these things, you know, before quite a few times. Just of course to add to that as well, of course, the UK has made no secret they intend to bid for the 2030 World Cup, of course, as well. So, yeah, it seems to be it's almost a circular thing or circular thing, isn't it? Where it just is almost going back on the conveyor belt, and then occasionally you'll have these one of these new states pop up, um, which is very interesting. And just just finally, I just wanted to get some actual some insight uh, from you both as as researchers in this area. What has the last year been like? You know, from a personal point of view, research in this area. Paul and I both wrote a paper on um, the impact of COVID on sport, and one of the aspects of that was, in particular, something I'm interested in around the uh, feel good factor and the lack of crowds. And I didn't know, and we didn't know at the time, that we would get an Olympics that has no crowd at all. So, uh, and in that we in that article we made the point that you know what is sport without because sport is sort of co-produced i mean it's you know i know a lot of athletes come out now saying i'm I'm not bothered if there's no crowd there but we know ourselves you know when it's through our olympian projects and many of them have said when i went into that stadium there was eighty thousand people cheering me on or cheering you know just cheering you know it was such an experience and it lifted my performance Uh, and without that um without one side of the co-production of sport and sporting excellence it's uh it's just very unusual, you know, very, very unusual. I mean, the only thing I'd say is obviously it's been a very difficult time as it has for, for, for many, many people. We've, but, you know, on the research front, I think COVID, like I think it has probably for, for most areas of research, um, adds an extra layer, an extra dimension through which to discuss you know how it's impacting major events how it's uh, impacting international politics and whatever else it may be um you know so but that's the same for for a a number of of, of fields uh, and disciplines as well so yes it certainly gives us more more to discuss and also write about as well thank you for listening to the latest episode of metcast the podcast of manchester metropolitan university your feedback is always welcome as are much needed review ratings on itunes 
so if you have a moment please head there to let us know what you think you can subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform that's all for now until next time goodbye